You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, we're talking about health and wellness today, and it's not really because we're on the back end of Thanksgiving. This isn't some backhanded way to shame you for the unnecessary amount of pie that you ate over the last few days. Uh, It's because this is where James goes. We're wrapping up this series called This Changes Everything. And what the book of James has been talking about is when you enter into a relationship with Almighty God, that leaves no area of your life untouched. You don't get to compartmentalize the omnipotent. When you have a relationship with God, it impacts everything. Impacts the way you process pain in your life. Impacts the way you treat people who are poor. It impacts the way you spend your money, what you read, what you think. And then today, it's going to talk about how it impacts your physical health. That our bodies are impacted by our spiritual relationship with God. Now, I know as I say that, some people that may raise some level of skepticism. Like, what do you mean by that? But, but let me just say this. This is good timing for us to talk about this. Because the Washington Post just had an article come out last week and they were reporting on an extensive report that just came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And the title of the article in the Washington Post was this, there's something terribly wrong. Americans are dying at alarming rates. And they were talking about this article from the Journal of the American Medical Association that for for the first time in history in America, that our mortality rates are going up and life expectancy is going down for three consecutive years among people ages 25 to 64. We're dying earlier. And that's, that's not the way it's supposed to go in a civilized society. And so the title of the article came from Dr. Wolf, who's the director of the Center of Social Society and Health at the Virginia Commonwealth University. And he said, the fact that these numbers are climbing, something's terribly wrong. What's happening here? And, and the increase in mortality is particularly acute among people in their 20s. They're going, what's going on with that? And, and drug abuse is part of it. Obesity is part of it. Uh, heart disease is still the leading cause. And yet there's a number of factors like that, that used to be common in men that are now common in women, like liver disease, problems from alcoholism. And as they're talking about these different issues, uh, the professor at Dartmouth Institute, Ellen Mira, said there's something more fundamental about how we're feeling. She said whether it's economic, whether it's stress, whether it's deterioration of the family, people are feeling worse about themselves and their futures, and it's leading them to do things that are self-destructive and not promoting health. The way we are navigating life is not leading to human flourishing at a physical level. And yet here's the interesting thing. That same journal posted an article three years ago, a study out of Harvard that interviewed over 74,000 women. And this is what they found. Out of 74,000 women, they found that those who attend religious services once a week have a 33% lower all-cause mortality compared with women who never attend a religious service. 
33% better. Their conclusion was frequent attendance at religious services is associated with significantly lower risk of all-cause cardiovascular and cancer mortality among women. There was a study out of the University of Texas that found that people who attend church regularly live seven years longer than their non-church-going counterparts. So let me tell you, we are here to try to save you spiritually every week. <laughs> but we're also here to save you physically. There are physical implications to this. CNN just had an article last week that we're looking at blue zones. That is the places in the world where people are living eight to 10 years longer than everyone else. And they centered in on one town in California and saw people who have the highest percentage of people living into their 90s and into their 100s. And they were trying to figure out what are they doing? Is it the weather? Is it the avocados? What is it? <laughs> And what they found was it's the highest concentration of Seventh-day Adventists. And they said, these are people who are strict about taking a day of Sabbath to rest and to pray. And they say, you know, they have some healthy physical factors. They eat a lot of vegetables, whatever, but that doesn't apply to it all. Something about spirituality is impacting them physically, that they're living long. And we need to talk about that. And so if you're a little skeptical about it, let me tell you something. The Bible speaks to this. There's something good happening when God touches down on your life and it leaves no part untouched. So today we're going to talk about James. This is going to be fun. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about healing. We're going to talk about anointing oil, church leadership. This is going to be nuts. But let me say this. Before we jump in, I want to bring some clarity to some complex issues. But in, in the sake of simplicity, I don't want to give us oversimplification. And, and to try to give clarity, I still want to leave room for mystery because we're talking about some mysterious things. Okay. So with that said, let me jump in. And really, if, if you were following along when I read it, prayer is really what this main section is about. He used the word prayer eight times and eight verses all through it. And, and he begins, well, and this is typical of the Bible. Incidentally, the Apostle Paul ends almost every letter this way. He says, pray in all occasions, pray in all circumstances. James doesn't say all circumstances. He starts to highlight different ones. And so you see in verse 13, he says, is anyone among you suffering? And that word suffering is a combination of the word feeling and bad. Anyone feeling something bad? Anybody? He gives an answer. Pray. That's your marching orders. Something bad going on in your day? You should talk to God about it. That's what you're meant to do. We are meant to process our experience with the King of Kings. And it's fascinating. You talk to a lot of people, that's not where they first go. They complain about it, whine about it, or try to distract themselves from it. James tells you, if you're feeling bad, pray. And it's a very generic word for to have a conversation with God. You're meant to bring your agony to the Almighty. That's how the world works, right? Uh, it's interesting. I, I read about a, a debate among two ministers once about this very issue. And one of them's like, we should go to God with everything. And the other one felt like, barging into the throne room of the Almighty reeked of presumption. He says, no, you're supposed to pray kind of through intermediaries, saints and the like. And as they were debating this issue, this guy said, hey, if you have an issue in America, you, do, you don't just kick open the door to the Oval Office and talk to the president about it, about any little thing. And this minister's response was, sure you do, if the president's your dad. And he says, God is the king of kings. He is mighty and exalted, but he's a loving dad. 
And so we get verses like Hebrews 4 that says, so let us approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Or 1 Peter 4 says, cast your anxiety on him because he cares about you. You are meant to take your agony to the Almighty. George Mueller, who led an incredible orphanage in Bristol, was asked once, how do you manage all that complexity of these hurting kids where finances are always low? How does that not crush you? And he said, because I rolled 60 cares upon the Lord this morning. A lot of our health-related issues are stress-induced. And our coping mechanisms actually are doing damage. And yet God's given us a way out. And what is it? You have a conversation with the king. It's interesting, when I talk to people about spirituality, I have a lot of people when they're growing their faith, they come up to me and they ask me, what books should I read and what podcasts should I listen to? And let me tell you something, I think reading books is great, I think listening to podcasts is great, but spirituality is not just about information, it's about conversation. That's point number one. Point number one is spirituality is not just about getting information, it's conversation that we're meant to process our life with the king. So is anyone suffering? Pray. And then he says, is anyone cheerful? And that's a combination of the word feeling and the word good. Anybody feeling good? Anybody having a good day? And then he says, sing praise. It's the word saleto. It's where we get the word psalm. It's what the psalms are. I'm processing my emotions, good or bad with God. You feeling good about it? Let God know about it. You're meant to just interact with him. Are you happy and you know it? Tell him about it. Develop a rhythm in your life where you're having an ongoing conversation with the king. That's what spirituality is meant to be. And it's fascinating. In our world today, we have an increase of information, but we don't have much meditation. Uh, And it's that meditation that leads to insight. And for many of us, the quiet moments where prayer used to happen in your car, in bed at night, is now just filled with distraction. And these distractions don't comfort us. They actually increase our anxiety. And yet we have a remedy here that's ancient and effective. Bring your life to the king. Talk to him about your life. Converse with him. It's normal for Donna and I at the end of the day to put all the devices away and spend hours talking. Why? Because we're married and we talk about everything. And yet it's interesting when I do premarital counseling, you have to talk to him about how important communication is. Why? Because suddenly through the course of life, you start to talk less and do more and you just start to be roommates. You have to fight for that communion. And it's the same with your relationship with God. You need to fight for that communion. Spirituality is not just information, it's conversation. So develop those muscles in your life. I realized for me, when I was in my 20s, I didn't pray very much. It's kind of an embarrassing thing to admit. As a Christian leader, I don't pray very much. And I realized I need to take an active step to do something about it. I was a part of a church that you could sign up for a 24-hour prayer watch. You could pick an hour of the week that you would pray. And I realized for me, I was scared enough of my church. If I signed up for an hour to pray, I would really go for it. And so I prayed for, I signed up for like uh, 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday or something. And I remember the first time I did it, I knelt in my room because I thought kneeling was spiritual when you pray. And I prayed for my roommates and I prayed for my family and I prayed for the university I was at and I prayed for the city and I prayed for the country and I prayed for the world and all nations for all time. And then I looked at the clock and it had been like two minutes. I was like, man, an hour's a long time. And then I fell asleep and felt really bad about that. So the next week I was like, all right, man, I got to change this up. And I remember reading a verse about praying in your closet. I was like, all right, praying in your closet has got to be spiritual. So I got in my closet, but like a lot of 20-year-old guys, it was just piled up with clothes. And so I just got in there and I was like, oh, it's like warm in here. I fell asleep like immediately, which felt really bad. So, 
So I decided this may not be spiritual, but I got to be moving. And then I realized if I just pray in my head, it quits becoming prayer. It becomes like half a song lyric and I'm not even paying attention to what I'm thinking. So I realized the only way I can concentrate is to talk out loud. And so if you live by me, you probably thought I was nuts. You're like, there he is again, crazy Ben, walking around the neighborhood like, and then he says to me, you know, and I'm just (laughs) processing with God. And what I realized was my prayer life was pretty infantile. Like I would run out of things to pray for in two hours. But when you gave yourself space, I realized there were all kinds of things I started processing with God. And here's the weird thing. Before that, I, I always felt a little weird about saying like, I love God. I don't know, something about, I don't know what it was with me. I just thought that sounded weak or something. But, but I, I fell in love with God in my 20s. And a lot of it was under the stars, just talking to him about everything. And you're meant to do that. I had a friend later in life, I saw him when they bought a new house and they were showing me this house and they showed me this room underneath their staircase. And they're like, dude, isn't this thing awesome? I was like, uh, yeah, it's like a closet. And they're like, no, this is gonna be our prayer closet. Like we're gonna trick it out with Bible verses and put and just kind of make it a space where anyone can come in and be quiet with the Lord and pray. When you buy a new house, is, is that the first thing you think of? Where am I gonna steal away with God? When you think about your week, do you go, where am I gonna go? Spirituality is not just information, it's conversation. So prioritize that. And then he gets to a more specific situation. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray for him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith that will will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. So it's interesting. This is point number two. There's a strong link between the spiritual and the physical. There's a strong link between the spiritual and the physical. And here's the thing. Most of us believe this to varying degrees, but most of us do. There's an article in the Huffington Post, which is not a particularly spiritual publication, but they wrote uh, an article entitled, Why People Who Pray Are Healthier Than Those Who Don't. And this is how the article began. If you want to achieve maximum health, here are a few things you should do. Exercise regularly, eat nutritious and minimally processed foods, drop the extra pounds, and pray. That's right. Regular prayer has been shown in numerous scientific studies to be an important factor in living longer and staying healthy. And most of us believe that. University of Rochester did a study, a survey in America and found 85% of people pray when they're physically ill. That's that's four out of five of us. When we're physically ill, we pray. Why? Because whether we've processed it or not, we believe there's some connection with the spiritual and the physical, right? It's interesting. Dr. Benson is a cardiovascular specialist at Harvard Medical School. And he tried to study this. Why? Why is prayer so impactful, even on things like heart disease, the leading killer of Americans? And so he started trying to study it. And he was like, there's a relaxation response that occurs during prayer and meditation. There's a physiological state that slows brain waves, increases tranquility, peace of mind. He says over half of all doctor's visits in the U.S. are prompted by illnesses like depression, high blood pressure, ulcers, and migraines that are caused by elevated levels of stress and anxiety. And people who pray have less of both of those things. It's interesting, at Bowling Green University, they did a study where they instructed people who suffered from migraines to spend 20 minutes praying every day. And one group, they gave spiritual affirmations to pray. If your mind wanders, just keep repeating, God is good, God is peace, God is love. And then they gave other people non-spiritual mantras. Just sit and meditate and say things like, grass is green, sand is soft, things like that. Those who were actually praying 
it said had fewer headaches and more tolerance of pain than those who focused on neutral phrases. The National Institute of Health found that individuals who pray daily are 40% less likely to have high blood pressure than those without the regular prayer practice. Isn't that fascinating? At Dartmouth, they found that patients with strong religious beliefs who underwent heart surgery were three times more likely to recover than those who were less religious. The medical community is replete with articles about this. There's some connection between the physical and the spiritual. Do I think it's wrong that they're trying to understand it physiologically? No, go for it. Do I think it's surprising that they're a bit confused on the correlation? No, I do not. Because we're talking about some sort of mystical thing. And yet it's undeniable. Something about communing with God is good for us. Releasing stress. Raising up trust. And here in this moment, he says, are you sick? And that word sick is the word weak. And it's used all through the Bible. It's used about mental weakness in Romans. It's used about a spiritual condition uh, in Romans 5. It's used about a weak conscience. Is your conscience bothering you in 1 Corinthians? Or it can be used often about physical sickness, which I think is more about this text because of some other issues. And so it's talking about that. And then it says, call for the elders of the church and let them pray. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. Spirituality is not just an individual conversation. There's a communal element that true spirituality is always worked out in the context of community. And that's what I love about that. He's like, in your normal rhythm of life, you should have a conversation with the king. And when you really hit hardship, like you're sick, you need to invite the community into that. It's a team sport. Spirituality always works itself out in the way of community. That's why you go to church, by the way. Let me just say that. Should you read those books? Yes. Should you listen to the podcast? Yes. And yet I talk to a lot of people like, my spirituality is a private matter. It's just me and God. No, because that book's not gonna pray for you. And that podcast is not going to visit you in the hospital. There's something about spirituality that's always meant to be worked out in the context of community. So he says, are you sick? Call up the church. Let them surround you and pray over you. The idea is there is you're laid out. And so let them physically come over you and pray over you while you're struggling, right? Now he says specifically call the elders. So let's get into some conversation about this. Who are the elders? Well, if you want to be wooden about it, in Greek, the word elder means comparatively older person. Okay. So in a strict sense, it's talking about have some old people pray for you. Right. (laughs) But if you read all through the Bible, it's showing up all through the new Testament that when you see churches planted, there's people who are providing oversight and they're called the elders, right? In the book of Acts, uh, when Paul has a dispute over theology with some people, he goes to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles and the elders. First Peter and James, they're all assuming that the churches they're writing to have elders that are leading the church. In Acts chapter 14, Paul says he appointed elders in several churches. And he encouraged the Ephesian elders to shepherd the flock that's among them. It's the word pastor. So he told the elders, pastor the people. So elders were spiritually mature men who who led these congregations, right? So elder can mean old person. Or it can mean, and there's a lot of overlap here, someone who has sort of an authoritative position of leadership in the church. And that's typically an older, wiser person, right? Now, different Christian traditions have understood this differently. Some people call the pastor of the church the elder of the church. We have an elder and that's the pastor. Some people call the staff that, because the word staff isn't in the New Testament. So you go, okay, these are people that we've all appointed and they're 
providing oversight to the church. So maybe staff is elders. For other traditions, like when I grew up in, it, it's, it's a ring of, of counselors that aren't necessarily doing all the work of the ministry, but they're providing spiritual oversight to the entire community. And they're typically older, wiser people. And uh, let me just tell you briefly at Passion, we have a board of elders. We don't have any here in DC because we're young. And it's interesting. I heard a pastor asked once, how many elders do we have in our church? And he says, we have as many elders as we have elders. He said, we don't pick a number. The Bible doesn't give you a number. The Bible gives you a set of character traits. And when you see those character traits, you elevate those people. And I'm not saying y'all don't have character. I'm saying we don't know each other that well. This hasn't been that long. And Paul told Timothy, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't rush to give people authority. You watch them for a while. But here's the good news. At Passion, we have a ring of elders. We have people that provide oversight and pray for us and help guide us through a lot of tricky positions. And they're really an amazing group of people. And so we have that. And then here in our context, we have a staff and we have team leaders and community group leaders that provide a lot of the boots on the ground spiritual oversight of our family here. And I'm really proud of our team leaders and community group leaders. We have some pretty remarkable people that wanna care for you and walk with you through life, right? Now, let me answer another weird question. This is answering all your questions about healing today. Here we go. Some might say, well, why, if you're sick, do you call the elders? Why not call the healers? Because weren't people healing people in the New Testament? Weren't there people with the gift of healing? Why call the elders? Why doesn't he say bring in the healers? Or what other people may say is, hey, shouldn't we all have the power to heal? Right? Uh, uh, I remember I have uh, kids come up to me once when I was leading college ministry and they asked me, have you healed the sick? Have you raised the dead yet? And I said, no, I haven't raised a dead person. They're like, well, then you lack faith. Because if you had enough faith, you would have raised a dead person by now. All right. Um, so how do you respond to this? What do you do with this issue? Well, let me just say this if we can jump into 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to uh, the church and he says, there's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There's one Holy Spirit, but he separates out gifts. And he says in verse seven, to each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. The spirit gives different gifts to build all of us up. He says, for one to one is given through the spirit an utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healings by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles. All are empowered by one and same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And then he says, hey, some of you, and he uses this body analogy, you can't say, well, I'm just a hand, I'm not an eye, so I'm not as cool. And other people can say, you're just a foot, you're not an eye, so we don't need you. He said, no, every part of the body has an important role to play. And then as he's talking about that, he comes around and he says, and God's appointed in the church first, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings. And then he asks the question, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healings? The implication there being no. God has given different gifts to different people. So are all of us out here healing people at will? No. And in the early church, there was a, different variety of, of ways this was manifest in different times. Like in Romans 12, Ephesians 4, there's different gift lists and miracles and healings are not part of that conversation. But are some people involved in the healing of other people? Yes, they absolutely are. He's so clear about that. And so what do we do about this? Well, let me give you quickly four thoughts on healing. Here you go, right? We can neither despise it nor exalt it too highly. So here's number one is what I'd say is it's, to be empowered by God to heal somebody else is not an indicator of special connection to God. 
And I've met some people that say like, hey, God has used me to, to pray over someone and they were healed. Therefore, I'm varsity spiritually in your JV. And as we launched this church, one of our first weeks here, a guy came up to me and basically gave me that talk. I have spiritual power, you don't. So I have a special connection to God and you don't. My concern is both Jesus and Paul warned us in the last days, people will come doing miracles, but will lead people astray from the truth. So I don't care if you've been a part of something miraculous, if it's not combined with truth. Amen. Truth is what concerns me, right? Yeah. And when you look in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Elijah did miracles, but Isaiah did not. And I think we like Isaiah. In the New Testament, Jesus and Paul did miracles, right? John the Baptist did not. And so God can use people and use you mightily, powerfully, but you may not necessarily be used in the act of healing somebody, right? But if you are, it's not for self-exaltation, it's for love. That's the second thing. So when Paul's talking to Corinthians, he's, he makes clear, God's given us all different gifts and we're meant to use them. But some people wanna see the more ecstatic gifts because uh, they think it'd be awesome or because it would help grow their faith. And, and Paul says, hey, if you speak with the tongue of angels and you can do miracles, but you don't have love, he says, you got nothing. He says, nothing. Love is our aim. And so we're meant to love people. That's what, that's what delights God when he sees a community that loves each other really well. Love people who are struggling mentally. Love people who are struggling physically. Love people who are struggling spiritually. When we love people, God delights in that, right? Also, it's not the ability to heal at will. There's not certain people in the church that just have the power to heal people whenever they want to. And this is fascinating. I don't think it worked that way in the New Testament either. The New Testament never talks about the gift of healing, like so-and-so has the gift of healing, or there's some office called the healer, right? Uh, it's interesting, in Corinthians, every time Paul mentions it, he uses two plurals, gifts of healings, that there's different scenarios, different situations, different people. Well, God will manifest gifts of healings, a variety of different moments where he'll use people powerfully. And so some of you may feel that at some time, a, a, a desire to pray for somebody with a powerful faith that they'd be healed. And, and God's gonna answer that. But does that mean you suddenly have the power to control it? Like, ah, you know, uh, no. It didn't work that way for the apostle Paul. That was his experience. The apostle Paul in the New Testament healed a crippled guy in Lystra. He healed many people in Ephesus. He cast a demon out of a girl in Philippi and Eutychus who fell asleep during one of Paul's sermons, which is a terrible thing to do. <laughs> fell out of a window and died, which you know what? Hey man. <laughs> and Paul in Acts chapter 20 was so kind Paul ran downstairs, grabbed the guy, and brought him back to life, which is a very kind thing to do for someone who falls asleep during your sermons. <laughs> so Paul did some amazing stuff and had incredible confidence that God would use him to do that. But did that mean he had a carte blanche ability to do that? No. In 2 Corinthians, he said, I had a thorn in my flesh, and I asked God to take it away, and God said no. He said, sometimes God tells me no. When he wrote to the Galatians, he said, I wasn't even planning on coming to you guys. It was an illness that made me have to detour to your city. Uh, you see, when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy to drink a little wine for your stomach. It's the favorite verse of uh, fraternities. <laughs> but you see, Paul doesn't separate the physical and the spiritual. Is he praying for Timothy? Of course he is. But he's like, hey, Timothy, you got all this stress and your stomach's crazy, drink a little wine, man, like just relax. 
And uh, he gives him a physical answer. Epaphroditus, he told the Philippians, he got a life-threatening illness. I thought he was going to die. He said it was stressing me out. And in 2 Timothy, he told Timothy, I had to leave Trophimus uh, in Miletus because he was sick. And so you see, Paul didn't always get to heal everybody. Why? Because God is sovereign in the affair. It's not mechanical. I haven't personally been a part of healing a lot of people. I have at times, I remember having a buddy that was really sick and, and I was like, man, I'll pray for you. And then left the room and I was like, no, I'm praying for you right now. And I remember that moment, just putting my hands on him, praying he'd feel better. And, and, and he got up and was like, hey man, I, I feel great. And I was like, well, I don't know what all happened with that. But I wasn't just like, it's my hands. I was just like, it's God who heals and he likes to use people. So should we pray for healing? Yes, it is right to seek it, but it's subordinate. That's what Paul told the Corinthians. He says, make love your aim, but eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. Isn't that great? If you make the gifts your aim, you'll get real weird and you'll try to manipulate the spiritual world. Well, you're trying to manipulate in a way that can be unhealthy. But if you make love your aim, I wanna know God. I wanna know him as he is. I wanna love him. I wanna love his people well. Then he says, if you got that as your North Star, then yes, pray for him to use work in power. Pray for him to heal people because God delights to do that. That's what James is talking about here. Call for the elders, anoint them with oil, pray over these people and God will heal them. Now, let's talk for a minute about anointing with oil. Some people are like, what's the deal with that? And how come we don't have any oil around here? Uh, well, what does he think the oil is going to accomplish? Some people debate that. Some people say there's a very practical purpose medicinally because you have places like the story of the Good Samaritan where the guy anointed his wounds with oil and with wine. It was a very common medicine, oil in the ancient world. So some people go, this is him just saying, pray and seek medical help. Right? Um, others say this is a pastoral thing. It's kind of an outward physical expression to help stimulate your faith in the same way that Jesus would use like mud or spit when he healed people. Did he really need mud? No, but for some reason he was like, this will kind of help you figure out that something's really happening. <laughs> Other people think there's more of a religious purpose like sacramental. Uh, and there's a big history behind the sacrament of it, but, but that people believe God, it's God who heals, but he works powerfully through instrumental means like oil. Or some people think it's symbolic, like in the Old Testament, you would anoint with oil somebody who was chosen to be king, or you would anoint with oil someone who was appointed to be a prophet or a priest. And that anointing was symbolic. God is putting his hand on you right now for a special task. Uh, I think this lends more naturally to that. The Bible is certainly pro-medicine. It's interesting that how, how common the Bible talks about we should take care of ourselves physically. But I, I don't think you need the elders to anoint you with oil. I, I think this is talking about something else. I think this is talking about a symbol of I'm doing a physical act to show you that, that I'm praying over you, right? But then in verse 15, he says, but it's the prayer of faith that will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. So whatever the oil is doing, it's not the saving factor, it's the prayer. And the Lord will raise him up. It's the Lord who makes that decision. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Now, here's another place people struggle with this. What is it talking about here? Is it talking about physical healing? And I think, yes, that word for save often talks about physical healing in the gospels. Sick person is usually talking about physical sickness. Raise up is used often in healing stories in the gospels of God raising people up when they're sick, like off their sick beds. And the picture of the elders praying over them means the person's probably laid out. But is there a spiritual element? Yeah, because he says, 
if he sins, he'll be forgiven. So they, James just connects our physical estate and our spiritual estate. And if they've sinned, they're forgiven. So you go, well, what does that mean? Does that mean if you're sick, it's because you sinned? I've talked to some of you that are like, man, I'm going through a hard time. Is God punishing me? Well, the book of Job tells you very clearly, you can't draw one for one. You can't say, well, if bad's happening to you, it's because you sinned. The book of Job calls that evil. It's not always a one for one that way. Jesus said the same thing. When he saw a blind guy, his disciples assumed it. They're like, well, Jesus, who sinned? Him or his parents? Somebody sinned because he's blind. And Jesus said, neither. It was for this moment that my power may be made known. Not blind. He was just like, I had this guy hang out blind for a while so y'all could all see I have the power to change lives physically. Like that was what it was for. It wasn't even about sin. So, so you can't draw a one for one if you're sick because God punishes you. And some of you, you would never say that out loud. You probably wouldn't check that box on a theological quiz, but some of you feel that way. Some of you have a chronic illness and you say, is God mad at me? And my answer is probably not. And the only reason I say probably not is there's moments like Mark 2 where a guy's paralyzed and Jesus doesn't come to him and say, be not paralyzed. He comes to him and says, your sin's forgiven. Doesn't always have a one for one. But some of us, our bad choices in life are hurting us physically. Some of us, decisions we've made are damaging us. First Corinthians, Paul warns against that. And so some of us, there is some implications here. And yet here's the beautiful thing. There's no shame in this text. He says, if you're struggling, invite the community to pray over you. We're gonna do that today before we leave. Just let people pray for you. Have the humility to come to the community. And, and if we pray, God, God saves. God lifts, raises people up and he'll forgive. God does that, right? God loves to move that way. That raises another question. You read that verse and you go, that sounds like an unconditional promise of healing. Get the elders and anoint them with oil and he'll be healed. And you go, wait a minute, what if they're not? I've had someone pray over me and, they, and I wasn't healed. I had someone pray over my family member and they died. How do you make sense of a verse like this? And people struggle with how do you make sense of what sounds like an unconditioned promise. And some would say, well, you know what? This just applies to the apostolic age. It doesn't apply today. But nothing in the verse suggests that. Or others would say, maybe you'll get healed physically or maybe you'll experience the ultimate healing of dying and going to heaven and being with Jesus. And let me say, dying and going to heaven and be with Jesus is the ultimate healing. I don't think that's what this verse is talking about because you don't need the elders to pray and anoint you with oil for that, right? So what is this talking about? Other people's look at that, it's a prayer of faith. And they say, if you pray in faith, God will heal you. So if you're not healed, it's your fault you didn't have enough faith. I had a professor have that happen to him. He suffered migraines and he told us the story of writing to a televangelist who promised, if you give us a seed of faith, manifest through a check, we'll pray over you and you'll be healed of your illness. And so he wrote a check because he was desperate and in pain to this guy and he still had migraines. And so he wrote the guy back was like, I still have migraines. Did y'all forget to pray for me? What? And the guy said, no, we prayed. You just must not have enough faith. And I think that's a pretty evil thing to say to somebody. And so what's going on in this passage? How do you make sense of it? Well, here's where you get the answer. You don't have to leave the book of James because James chapter five is underneath James chapter four. 
And James chapter four says, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. You see that? No, excuse me. He says, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. See, all of this happens under the sovereignty of God. If the Lord wills, we will live. He gets to decide if you live and when you die. And by implication, he may decide you die. He may radically save you like he did Peter out of prison. Or he may stand and applaud you as he welcomes you home like Stephen and you die as a martyr. He gets to decide. And so we can't come to healing with presumption. Well, I did A, B, and C, I should get D outcome. That's not what James is advocating. If the Lord wills, we will live. And yet we're not meant to come with presumption, but we are meant to come with expectation. He's opening a door saying, but I want you to come because I am inclined to answer it. I want to bless my people. I wanna raise you up. I wanna give you life. So we don't come to God with presumption, but we do come with expectation that there's a real God that can really impact our lives and really make a difference. Not just emotionally, though that's important, and not just spiritually, though that's vital, but also physically. We should come to God with the expectation he delights to care for his people. He does. It's interesting. I read a book years ago, not a Christian book. It was by Ben Sherwood. He was a a producer at ABC's Good Morning America and then moved to NBC Nightly News. Graduate of Harvard, Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, wrote a book about survival. And the whole book was about who survives and who doesn't. Fascinating book, some of it fairly intuitive. Like young, healthy men survive plane crashes more than old, unhealthy women. It's not surprising. Some of it was surprising, like left-handed people die earlier than their right-handed counterparts. Very interesting. Or people with negative uh, initials die earlier than people with not negative ones. I am left-handed and my initials are BS. (laughs) So according to this guy, I'm in real trouble. It's a disturbing book for me. But there was a chapter on faith. And he said in that chapter, he says, when I started this book, I was skeptical of the role of faith in survival. And he says, I didn't want to write about faith. Not a religious person, I don't want to write about it. And he said, because I looked at all these scenarios, he said 75 or 80% cited a higher power as the reason for their survival. He went to the Naval Survival Training Institute and talked to the guy who literally wrote the book, How to Survive on Land and Sea. He talked to the guy who wrote the book on how to survive. And he asked him his boilerplate question, what's the key to survival? And he says, without hesitation, he said, faith in God. He said, it's a key factor in all survival scenarios. It's a force multiplier. Believing God will intervene. Believing God will move. And then he begins to recount stories he just couldn't explain. Talked about Gary McCain, who was working on his air conditioning in Woodmont, Kentucky. Someone came running up and said, two workers are trapped in a nearby underground cistern. So he volunteered to shimmy down this hole and get these guys out. And when he started down, there was an explosion underground and it lit him on fire. Gary was able to climb out and extinguish the flames, but all he had on was his leather belt and one boot. And Sherwood writes that he had experienced full thickness. That's what you call third degree burns on 85% of your body. So they put him in a medically induced coma for two and a half months. And when he came out of the coma, he told the story about a dream he had when he was under. The dream was he was walking down a sterile hallway, turned past the nurse's station, went to some double doors, 
tried to open them and couldn't do it. So he went back to his room. And when he told them that story, they all freaked out. Because they were like, your grandpa brought the elders to pray over you. And the night they prayed, you coded. You had a cardiac arrest. So they were out of the room, he says, but your papa and the elders went to the exit door and prayed over it that you would not leave till you were healed. And they said, this guy came into the hospital in a coma. He had no idea the layout of the building, but he vividly could describe the hallway. He walked down the story turn and trying to exit this door and he couldn't. So he went back and his recovery happened so fast that he was released a year before the doctors had predicted. How do you make sense of that? I don't. But I'll tell you, I come to God without presumption, but I come with expectation. So look, drink your kale smoothie, right? (laughs) Take your turmeric shots. Consume elderberries, however you consume them. And then pray. Because we should come with expectation. The prayer of the righteous person has great power when it's working. Isn't that a great line? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah did crazy stuff in the Old Testament. But James points out he had, he's made of the same stuff as you. He wasn't something other than you. He just believed God's real and God really intervenes. And so he prayed fervently that it might not rain. One prayer didn't do it. He prayed fervently it may not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain. And then he prayed again and it gave, heavens gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Man, just like us, prayed earnestly and God did something and we're meant to do the same. I watched a video several years ago called The Bridge. It was about uh, the Golden Gate Bridge because it's a destination spot for suicide. It's not a very upbeat movie. I wouldn't recommend it, but it, it's not like a, it, it was a documentary about suicide. This man set up cameras for a year watching the bridge and not just to watch people die, they would call and try to save people. Some pretty amazing stories of how they did. But then he would interview the people who tried to take their life, interview their family, interview their friends, trying to understand why some people take their life. And in this video, he's interviewing this guy, Kevin Hines. Kevin was severe manic depressive, bipolar, knew he had some issues in his life and he couldn't get them straight. Felt like he was a burden on the community, so decided to take his own life. And he said, when I was riding on that bus to the gate, Golden Gate Bridge, I just kept praying for someone to stop me. But no one on the bus knew me, nobody did. So he got to the bridge and he jumped off. When you jump off that bridge, you're traveling at 240 feet in four seconds. Your body moves at over 75 miles an hour. When you hit that water, it's like hitting concrete. It crushes your bones. It sends bone fragments splintering through your body. One coroner said, most corpses are as stiff as a board. He says, people who jump off this bridge, their body's like a sack of rice. It just destroys your interior scaffolding. People go there because they think it's a romantic way to end your life. It's actually a horrible way because you're severely injured and then you drown. And Kevin jumped. But he said, as soon as I let go of that bridge, I realized I don't wanna die. And he said, so on my four second trip down, I just prayed, God, would you help me? And he hit that water, shattered two vertebrae, but he realized I'm, around, I'm alive. The impact didn't kill me, but his legs didn't work. He shattered his vertebrae. 
So he's like, well, this is terrible. I survived the drop off this huge bridge and now I'm gonna die by drowning. As soon as he thought that, he felt a bump on his leg. He's like, no, I'm gonna die by getting eaten by something. <laughs> but what he figured out over time was it was uh, some sea lions that came and over the next couple hours just kept bumping him up, keeping him on the surface until the rescue boat found him and took him to the hospital and saved his life. And he realized God answered my prayer. Now, could God have answered it pre-jump? Sure. But God has his way of working and God saved me. And the video ends with a PSA of Kevin standing on that bridge saying, hey, there was a day I got so low, I thought my life was over and God saved me. And you see video clips of him just praying over people on the bridge. God rescued me for a purpose, to comfort, to care for people. And this is the last point. Your greatest needs are spiritual, not physical. And that's where he ends. My brother, if any of you wanders from the truth, someone brings him back. Let him know whoever brings back a sinner from him who has wandered will save his soul from death, cover a multitude of sins. Kevin physically lived and that's great, but he's gonna physically die someday, all of us do. And what's so amazing at the end of this video is his spiritual life. But God saw me when I was hurting. God cared for me. God forgives me. God gives me life. And so he ends by saying, hey, let's pray for one another. She might be healed. And if you've sinned, let's confess it and forsake. Because when you bring someone to the truth, you save them from a multitude of sins. That's the big issue. That's Jesus' big issue. That's why he would physically heal and preach the gospel. And when they said, hey, stay in this town and keep healing, he said, no, I must go and preach because the miracles authenticate the message. They, they got your attention, but the message is a kingdom is coming because a king is here. The message is healing is coming because a healer is here. The message is salvation is coming both now and forever because the Savior's here. What you need more than physical comfort is you need a personal Christ. You need Jesus to step into your story. He took on physical suffering. He took on death. So you and I can have spiritual life and life in the age to come. And so my hope for you, and we're gonna have a moment here to pray over you. And let me tell you something, we, we wanna pray for everything. This passage mingles through physical, spiritual, emotional issues. And, and that's us. And we're meant to pray for one another. And so let's do that together. But just know this, our hope for you more than anything, whether God chooses to physically heal you now or not, whether you're Lazarus who died the first time and Jesus raised him from the dead, Lazarus died the second time and Jesus is like, no, that's good. You're, you got out of the first one. You can know, but I have life eternal beyond the grave because I know the King. And that's our hope for you. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.